back in 1948. Capitol Records also was attempted. Was to, yes, oh and I never knew that. Until <laughs> years later, you know, uh, Nat King told, was the one who told me that. I had no idea that Capitol had ever been interested in me. I thought Atlantic was it, you know, at the moment. I was just so glad to get somebody to take me, you know. <laughs> I'll let you all go. Thank you. Bless your heart. And I tried with everything in me to get to talk to someone at Electra Asylum because at that time this was like a flashing label. They were just doing great things. But uh, that never happened. So eventually I just sort of just gave up on it and did some we were just one shot. Just getting into black music. Electric yes. no black music now. I remember I it. I had a young guy, a guy named Don Myself, to go build me a black department. Yeah. And I made a deal with a company called Solar Records. I'm familiar with it. And, uh, had the Whispers and Shallow Wine. Yeah. Like Never as successful. Now, right now, we got an enormous black department. Got Freddie Jackson. Oh, I'm Tina, aware from Hush Tina, Productions. And Tina Turner and Melvin Moore and Melissa Morgan. And uh, I got some good stuff. I will agree you have. I've been trying to get the Hush production. Well, I knew Melba. I have not talked to her in a long while, but I've been trying to get to to her. Charles, her husband. No, no. Because I wanted to get them to listen to my son. Of course, course, being his mother, I'm partial, but I believe he's one of the unheard talents around. You know, he just did a film for Paramount. Is he in New York? Yeah, he's here in Los Angeles. He's been working with a group called The Boys Next Door. They played the speakeasy. Give me a tape and I'll send it off to Hush and and I'll get you an answer. Oh, I will. Before I leave here, you'll give me my card and uh, if I have a card. Yeah, he lives right in Van Nuys. You can call me Capitol Records, so it's okay. That's wonderful. I'm doing a book. Yes. Okay. When you you were talking when you were out there looking, you were an innocent and it was an innocent time when you, you came to Atlantic. They had just been in business a few years. Oh, indeed it was, if even that long. They were um, a very, very new company, still sort of searching around for uh, talent. They're going to celebrate their 40th anniversary. Yes, and I have been notified that I have been invited to be a part of that. I had hoped that they would. I talked to, I was with Ahmed. Ahmed's in were the you? And I interviewed him the other yes. day. Yes. And he was my partner at Warner's for years. It was Warner's. I see, yes. Time, so we were partners. And uh, they're going to do a big television show and they want you on the TV show. And How wonderful. And so forth. But it was a real innocent time. Yes, it was. It really was. In fact, the way that I really met Ahmed uh, and Herb Abramson, it was at that time, um, really came through a chain of events. Waxy Maxi, who had the record shop and in Washington. And um, at that time, the other partner, the foursome, was uh, he later became Mr. Barnum and Bailey. Oh, yeah, Irving Fell. Irving Fell. These were the buddies, you know. Ahmed's father at that time, Ahmed Neshri's dad, was Turkish ambassador to the United States. And I was singing at a little club called Crystal Caverns at 11th and U Street. And uh, the Howard Theater, of course, was the mecca for all of the important black talent at that time. And so one night, the great Duke Ellington came into this nightclub. And with him, that's right, was a man named Willis Conover, who was the voice of America. 
at that time, and he listened to me sing, and he went to the payphone in the check room, and he called Ahmed Erdogan, Herb Abramson, one of the two. At the time, he called them and uh, convinced them that he thought it would be worthwhile if they'd come and take a listen to this young singer at the Crystal Caverns. And that's how the relationship started. So they did send someone down. I think it was Herb Abramson, and at that time, it was a fellow working with them named Blackie. I don't know, Blackie Sales maybe was working with the the early uh, Atlantic label at that time. And they came down to Washington, D.C. and listened to me. And you used to sing cool jazz? Yes, indeed. That's what I was doing. Uh, Vaughn Monroe, (laughs) all the Bing Crosby stuff, um, at the waters, you know. Why were you doing that kind of music? Well, mainly because I had come out of a a home... uh, that was basically uh, spiritually motivated. My father sang and was a choir director in the church, and is in most homes. You know, in the southern homes, the first thing necessary was that you sing the music of the house of the Lord. And if you did venture outside of that, you would not step so far as to sing blues. That indeed was the devil's music, you know. But what I grew up listening to were the stations that played country western. And at that time, like the Glenn Miller Orchestra, Tex Beneke, yes, uh, the Andrews Sisters, all the pop things. uh, Not until later. I knew of their existence. But I didn't get a chance to see them perform or to even hear their music in my house, mainly because my dad sort of controlled what we did here in the house. When I really first got a chance to become aware of somebody outside of... i tell you what I did here. I did hear Hatta Brooks at that time, you know. Uh, but again, she wasn't singing really blues. But when I really became aware of someone outside of that particular vein of music, I had an uncle in New York, my dad's oldest brother, who used to come south in the summertime. And he came this particular summer, and he bought a Victrola, a wind-up Victrola, it was. And along with him, he brought some of his records. And he had Fats Waller and Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday. Oh, like a whole nother world for me, you know, to hear this. I think the first thing I ever heard by Ella Fitzgerald was a song called Have Mercy. And on the other side was I'm Up a Tree. Nobody seems to remember these songs, (laughs) but I remember them vividly because I learned it. Uh, That song went, am I your love or not? Please make it clear. Why won't you tell me what I long to hear? Pity me, can't you see I'm up a tree? I heard it by Ella Fitzgerald. Nobody remembers that. You know what I never heard either. I, I know. I that. doubt it. <laughs> How good a singer were you? How good did you think you were? Well, I was considered to be rather a good singer even at that time because I had be, began singing at a very early age in the church and I was in everything musical in school. You know, all the the glee clubs and the choirs and whatever went on musically 
in the uh, grade schools. I was usually a part of that. And there were three of us, three girls who sang together. In my early high school years, we called ourselves the I.C. Norcom Sweethearts. And we were singing again, uh, really country and western. We were singing down in the valley, the valley so low. Let me go, let me go, let me go, lover, you know. And the Hank Williams things, you know, um, uh, what's that thing? The train is gone so long. I'm so lonesome I could cry. Yeah, those were the times. Yes, that was the basis, you know. What was, uh, there was a Lucky Millinder story. Yeah. What happened when the short time of Lucky Millinder? Mm-hmm. Well, I worked in little clubs in and around Virginia after I finished high school, mostly by word of mouth. You know, one club owner would say, well, I've got a girl singer who's good. And I had gone from a club in Norfolk called the Big Track up to a club in Petersburg called the Ballerina. It was owned by a guy named Mo Barney. And he was friends with two brothers in Detroit named Jaime and Benny Gassman, who had a club called the Frolic Show Bar. And he told them that uh, he thought I was good enough to play that room, and they hired me. So I rode to Detroit by bus, and I was working there when Lucky Millinder and the Stan Ken Band played the old uh, Paradise Theater in Detroit. And so one night after the show, I think it was Lucky Millinder and... Chico Alvarez, and I think Jimmy Nottingham was in that band, Al Gray, Billy Mitchell, all the best in that lucky Melinda Orchestra. And they all came by the Frolic Show Bar. That was the spot, you know, for everybody to hang out. And Lucky heard me singing in the show that night. And I really think that it came sort of off of a dare because they parted for a long time, you know, drinks flowed. And so after a while, he said to me, uh, how would you like to sing with my band? And I I heard it, but I didn't really believe it. You know, I said, oh, I'd like to. But even then, he had two singers. He had Bull Moose Jackson. He had Anastine Allen with the band. But nonetheless, the next day, I went up to the Gotham Hotel where everybody was staying. Teddy Reed was manager for the band at that time. And they stood me up in the middle of the floor, and I sang... I guess 10 songs, you know, just for Lucky's pleasure. Everything, anything he would say, do you know, do you know, usually standards, and I sang them. And so he said, well, I'm, I think you're good, and I'm going to hire you with the band. When the band leaves, you go with us. And Jaime and Benny Gassman allowed me to be written out of uh, my contract at the Frolic so that I could leave with the band. Well, I toured with the band three or four weeks without ever really getting a chance to sing a note, just riding around, running up hotel bills and food bills. So finally, when we did get to Washington, D.C., they were going to play Washington at a place called Turner's Arena. And that was the first night that I was going to get to sing with the band. And there were two charts written for me. I think that they found John Malachi, who was a pianist, and he wrote two charts. One was, um, tomorrow night, will you remember what you said tonight? The old Lonnie Johnson tune. And the other was a Diana Washington tune, Evil Gal Blues. So I did get to perform that night, sang my two songs. And when I finished, 
Billy Mitchell, Al Gray, said to me, Ruth, if you go up to the snack bar, would you bring us some cold drinks? So about five or six of the guys in the band said, would you bring us some sodas? So I came back with this cardboard carton with all sodas in it. And Lucky looked down and he saw me with this tray of sodas. And I, if time and memory serves me right, I think it was the 4th of July. So like everybody been sort of celebrating, it was Independence Day. And he looked down at me and he said, I hired you as a singer, not as a waitress. And on second thought, you don't sing very well anyway. <laughs> you know, oh my God. and it was just a bad night for me all around. I guess so. And so he said, uh, "Well, I don't think it would make sense for you to go any further with the band than here." So you strung out there. Yes, I, I was. I was 220 miles from home. I was from Portsmouth, but I didn't have the nerve to call home and ask for ticket money. Not for my father. He didn't want me to go in the beginning. So anyway, the bus loaded at the Howard Theater. That's where they all loaded because there was a place across the street called Cecilia's, the stage door where all the musicians went to, to dine and wine. And this is where the bus loaded. So I really thought he was kidding me. I just could not believe that he was really going to just leave me, you know. But when he insisted that he was going to, then I asked for my little money or whatever I had coming. And he said I had nothing coming because he'd been paying the hotel bills and feeding me, you know, the whole thing. And so there I was. The that bus, was that was my first knowledge of the raw side of show business. And so that's where they left me, in Washington. Tell me, when, uh, when Atlantic Records got, got interested in you, was it a hard push to get you to sing some blues? Yes. You fought them? Yes. Yeah, that's what I'm told. Yes, I did. I really did, you know, because even though I wanted to sing, I still was very much aware of the fact that my dad would definitely not approve of my singing the blues, even though he liked them. But it just wasn't the norm to admit that. Nobody would admit that, and for the daughter, no, you know. But I did fight. I fought it. All the way, in fact, you know. What finally turned the, uh, the ball game around? Well, I think what really happened was, in, at the very beginning, there was such a, there was like really a family kind of a personal closeness between Ahmet and Herb Abramson and myself, because they were new and they did not have that many persons involved, so like we there were times when they'd go out, we'd eat together, I'd visit their homes, and I got to the place that I just sort of trusted their judgment, you know. And the main thing was that the tunes that they were coming up with did not really have what I would consider risque lyrics. It was just the rhythm pattern that was different. And so when they brought Rudy Tunes in, uh, and he came up with some things that he thought would be good for Ruth Brown, Ahmed said, trust me. Herb Abramson said, you're going to be great. It's just going to be great. Because prior to that, we've been doing Happiness is a Thing Called Joe. And I Can Dream, Can't Leo Fools, Where Can I Go, Dear Little Boy of Mine. They really didn't know just what pocket I was going to be in. Because the first time that I really recorded was part of the cavalcade of music for Eddie Condon, not me. 
Eddie Condon's session was what they took me in on, and they had a spare session to do, and I became part of that session. Uh, that's one of the things I'm sure that had a lot to do with the fact that my very first record was almost a perfect one because of the musicians that were on it. You had Joe Bushkin and uh, Bobby Hackett, Big Big Sid Catlett, Ernie Caceres, you know, yes, uh, Eddie Condon himself on guitar. Um, it just couldn't miss musically. And that whole trumpet introduction on So Long, which is like just incredible. That's what just took me right over. That's uh, Bobby Hackett, of course. When you, uh, when you hit it, Mama and Teardrops and those that were in the songs, what was the impact on Ruth Brown, who was a girl from Portsmouth, Virginia? All of a sudden, you are a star. Yes, yes. I think... Um, I had quite a few records to get a lot of airplay, but I really was not aware of the fact of the strength and the presence of Ruth Brown, per se, until they started packaging me with some of the big names. Like who? Joe Lewis, the heavyweight champion of the world. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Count Basie, Sugar Ray Robinson. Um, Charlie Ventura and his band, uh, Billy Eckstein, Count Basie, George Shearing. All of a sudden, I became aware, and they put me on a package with Charlie Parker when they first when he first went out with Strings. I worked with Lester Youngs and Coleman Hawkins, you know, the Buddy Johnson Orchestra. I, that's when I really became aware. You know, once they started the packaging of of all these great names, and I would look up and say, "My goodness." How did I get here? And then I think one thing that really convinced me was when I, the one and only time that I worked with Nat King Cole at the Paramount, when Ella Fitzgerald was the singer on the bill and she was taken ill and they sent me in her place, I couldn't believe that they were sending Ruth Brown, the rhythm and blues singer, in to replace the great Ella Fitzgerald. I stood in awe of this woman, you know, and... Here I was on the same bill with Nat King Cole and the Count Basie Orchestra. Then it dawned on me that maybe I had made it, you know. And when I got to go back home, when I say back home to Norfolk, Virginia, is where all the big shows were held. When I got to go home and Joe Lewis came to our house and sat down to the table with my dad, and at that particular time, for any black man to have the heavyweight champion of the world, especially Joe Lewis, come into his home, it was probably the greatest uh, acknowledgement of, of being something special. And for my dad, no matter what I did, nothing ever equaled that. The fact that Joe Lewis came with me to our house, you know? In the years since, and when you retired for a while, and you look back and you just mentioned such an all-star lineup of all-time stars, that just take your breath away. I mean, how do you, how do you it does that? take my breath away. Yeah. It does take my breath away. Because um, in these recent years, uh, 
time is slipping away and all of our superstars are slipping away. You know, years are passing by. I'm matured now. I'm what I consider a senior citizen who sings rhythm and blues, <laughs> you know. But when I stop and think of the magnitude of the people that I worked with as a young girl, it just did not occur to me at that time because I was having a good time. I was making people happy. I was enjoying the music that I was doing. Uh, I was in the position to do some things for my family. My brothers and sisters were proud of me. The little hometown that I came from had acknowledged me, you know. They turned around and had a Ruth Brown Day. You know, they honored 29 important people from the state of Virginia, and I was that one woman, you know. So all of a sudden now, and that, and my children are grown, and I'm a grandmother, and now my kids say, Mama, I bought a book the other day, and there's a story in here about you, you know. And they, I said, well, I didn't know, you know, that I was documented in all of these encyclopedias of rhythm and blues, encyclopedias of jazz, and that most of the school libraries now have the curriculums about the innovators and the beginners of rhythm and blues and who really started and who was there in the beginning. You know, when I, I listen to music now, especially the way rhythm and blues now is coming back, and in a way much stronger than ever because it's been used in commercials and soundtracks for films, um, it has occurred to me that I don't know of any uh, rhythm and blues or top jazz artists that you can just inadvertently name from the year 1948 until this day that I have not had the privilege of working at one time or the other with or knowing on a one-to-one -one basis. You know, that just did not occur to me. And now, every time I pick up the paper, and unfortunately sometimes and most times, it's an obituary column, and I see that somebody's passed. There's some good memory that I have, you know. My mind will flash back, and I'll remember something special about that person or the time that I worked with them or how nice they were to me or something they said to encourage me, you know. And I'm very much aware now of the greatness uh, of the, the how tall they stood. I was tiny and I was young, you know, but I really am aware now of how fortunate I was. I was a little talented, I was lucky, but I think now I was really fortunate because I can sit down and talk about it firsthand. I don't have to read about these people. I knew these people. My children have to read about it, and I have to try to encourage some of the young people to understand the greatness of some of these people they're just taken for granted. You know what, uh, what's come through? I, I've interviewed Cy Oliver. And yes, people. yes. Uh, those years, the difficulties of being a black entertainer and trying to move through that, uh, how much discrimination, how much of that did you ever get to feel? Oh, I felt some of it, of course. Um, I would suppose less than others before me. I would suppose mainly because I was always surrounded, as I said, by a group of people where we and we had our own little world. We dealt with it for a while. You know, we go through the towns. We understood that we couldn't live. There were no 
good hotels in the deep south, but there was always a comfortable black-owned hotel or motel that we patronized. We were not allowed to get into the Holiday Inns, the Ramadas, whatever they were at that time. And most of the time, we lived on the buses, in the cars. And even though that segregation existed in the towns, in the surroundings, in the accommodations that we had, uh, the different restrooms, sometimes no restrooms, not being allowed to go in and purchase food and sit down and enjoy it. People like the great John Coltrane, I have a, a picture somewhere that's priceless of he and I in the deep south where we had to get our food out of the back door and we're sitting out with a piece of newspaper spread on top of a garbage can to eat. That was John Coltrane. You know? Uh, but the music sort of sheltered us from what really went on because we did we played the music people enjoyed they danced and we got on the buses and we moved on and rhythm and blues artists unlike um, the big bands of Cy Oliver and the Cab Calloway orchestras they were privileged to play some of the clubs you know the, the big the ballrooms the rainbow rooms the Copacabanas we never did get a chance to do that until some of the kids in the late 60s, young Bobby Darrens and whatnot. But I never got to do that. I played the barn and the warehouses, the Elks homes, the city auditoriums. On the radio, I, I had two shows. I had a rhythm and blues kind of show at night, and I had a real pop show in the afternoon. And the station used to give me all kinds of hell, and I would be playing your records yes. or, or Hank Ballard. Oh, yes. Those during the day. I could do that at night. That was okay. Mm -hmm. The music was almost got It's so true. And I have to fight that. It's Hank was here the other night, incidentally. I understand, and I, I've talked to him for this book, too. Okay. BB? Was it hard to, when the, the hits, and you pulled out of it around the early 60s, wasn't it? Yes. And you're still very young. Is it hard to decompress from this life of Duke Ellington one day, comp base day, and all of a sudden you're a housemaker? <laughs> yeah, it, it took a, it was quite a change. Um, but it was a change that I made out of the necessity and wanting to be a good mother. I had two children who needed my presence. And... They needed uh, my presence every day to be there, to sort of uh, have some home base for them. And we had gotten into a, an era, and at that time I was living in Long Island, and my children were in excellent schools with good curriculums, uh, school districts better than they'd ever been in before. And I decided that I was just going to do nine to five jobs if necessary to see to it that they remained in these school districts, that they were able to uh, use to their advantage these curriculums that the schools presented. And I did that up until both of my boys were in college. I did day jobs, domestic work, worked with retarded children, worked in daycare programs, rode the school buses, became a counselor to children who had abused drugs, just a person that could listen. Never had a degree in it. Did people say, wow, you're Ruth Brown? Some people did. Yeah. Others didn't know. Yeah. You know, uh, more than often when I worked in private homes, they didn't know who I was. Because most, most times that, those, those were white homes. 
uh, homes of some of the well-to-do families up in the hills where my children went to school with their kids. They never knew who I was. But I was earning a decent living to take care of my children. Red Fox. (laughs) Red came to Westbury Music Fair along with Billy Eckstein, with whom I had traveled many times, and I'd worked with Red many times. And in 1975, they came to the Westbury Music Fair to do a concert, and at that time, Red had become very famous with his television show. I had not seen him or Billy Eckstein in many years, but of course, my curiosity was killing me, and I had that bug. I was just, just wanted to go backstage and sit and chat with them, you know. And I was a little leery as to if they would receive me, you know, or if the fact that he was now nationally known television star, if that would cause him to, to turn me away. I was a little worried about that, you know. So there was a small club out in Seafoot, Long Island, called Sonny's Place, that I always speak of with great love because the owner, Sonny Myrowich, was probably the one out of two people who kept me musically on top of everything because I was always able to go there and sing one or two nights, you know, a month or sometimes three nights out of the month. Other being Ann Sneed who ran a jazz program in the schools in Suffolk County. And I was able to go in and work with them in workshops and early morning classes in school and talk about the music itself. But anyway, I did go to see Red Fox at Westbury Music Fair. And I went backstage and I sent a note by the security guard and I said to please ask Mr. Fox if he would read this note. And he took it and I sort of hesitated because I thought he was going to come back and say, well, he's busy. But nothing like that happened at all. I could hear Red scream when he opened the note. I heard him. He said, Ruth Brown, where is she? You know, and the security guard said, She's at the stage entrance, and he stepped out in the hallway of the music. He said, go get her. Bring her in here. Don't let her stand there. Another man, bring her in, you know? And the security guard took me in, and he and Billy Eckstein were sitting in the dressing room together, and they just both stood up, and we hugged, and the tears, and the joy, and where have you been, and what are you doing And I told him I was working in daycare, taking care of, I had 75 school children that I was working with between the ages of three and seven at that time. Red said, but you should be singing, you know. And I said, well, I have not been able to because of my children and my one child then had just gone into Howard University, had gotten into college, and my second child had just gotten into his first year at uh, the University of Albuquerque, New Mexico. And so I was kind of by myself at that time, trying to hold on to this house and everything out there, you know. And so Red said, why don't you come to California? And I said, for what? And he said, just come to California. I said, I can't afford it. That was my words exactly. I said, I can't afford it. So he said, okay, I'm going to send for you. You just come out and visit. And I said, okay, Red, I'm going to hold my breath, you know. I said, I won't hold my breath. That's what I said. He said, but no, seriously, I'm going to send for you. And it was interesting because uh, that was uh, in October of 1975. 
and I'd had to send some money to my kids in school, and I was kind of short on some things. And that particular week, I had been late paying my telephone bill, and my telephone had been turned off. But I had some of the dearest friends in the little neighborhood where I lived. There was a service station directly in front of my house called Wheatley Heights, and it was run by Mr. Caldwell and a very sweet Italian man called Mike Balducci, who became like dear, dear friends to me, you know. And they were taking my phone calls. And whenever you would, I would, they would say, you can give them this phone number, Ruth. And when they would answer the phone, they'd say, Wheatley Heights. So a lot of people thought it was an apartment house, <laughs> you know. So Red Fox, I gave him this number. And with, they left that Sunday. And I guess around Wednesday... Mike Dalducci, whenever there was a call for me, he would come to the back door and whistle. And I would catch his whistle across the street and come to the window, and he said, run, you know. And he yelled, and he said, NBC is calling. Hollywood is calling you. And I said, oh, come on, you know. He said, I swear, it's Red Fox, NBC. And I ran breakneck to this telephone, and sure enough, there was Red on the other end and he said your ticket has been wired and I expect to see you on the flight when it gets to Los Angeles tomorrow just like that that's the way I came to California he paid for the plane ticket I called my sons and told them what had happened and what they thought they said go so I gave my door keys to my brother and one to a neighbor and I boarded a plane for California. And the first day when I got to California, Red had me picked up at the airport in his rolls. <laughs> and he put me up at the Bel Air Hotel, the Bel Air Sands, for about a month. And I think he gave me something like five or $6,000 to just steady myself. God bless him. That's what he did. He probably never wanted me to talk about it, but that's what Red did. That's how I got to California. And you started working? Right around here. Started singing again, you know, around the Parisian room. He gave me little walk-on scenes in Sanford and Son. And then I worked my way into Vegas and became the house act in the Circus Circus. And from Vegas, they were testing for the first all-black guys and dolls at the Aladdin. And I tried out for it, and I got the role of General Cartwright. That's where it all started. And I went from there into the Meadowbrook Playhouse. I was doing a little play called Living Fat in Vegas one night. Norman Lear walked in and saw me and just plucked me right up. and said he thought that I had great comic timing, and he brought me back and put me in a series with McLean Stevenson called Hello, Larry. And letters start to come in saying, is that Ruth Brown, the singer, you know? And one thing sort of, it's, it's, it's like uh, storybook time, you know? It is, it is. It was like storybook time. And it's been, uh, that's where it started. And a lot of good friends were there when I needed them. How's your voice now compared to? Better than ever. There are times uh, when I feel a little tired, and I think I, ha I am partly responsible for that because I believe I'm singing harder now. 
than I ever have. I would not really want to say that I'm frightened. I'm not frightened, but I feel as though uh, there was a song I recorded a long time ago on Atlantic called There's So Little Time and So Much to Do. I feel like I really still have a lot to say musically. Have not been able to say so on records for many years uh, because the music changed and uh, the way they recorded changed. Uh, everything became a little more self-contained. It was more showy, you know, uh, backups, dancers in the whole scene. And I'm just not the kind of singer that can be sort of tied down into anything. I don't know that I could perform well to a tape. I don't think that I could because I'm too changeable, you know, um, but it's uh, it's terrific being doing it again. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's